0: Good morning Woodland Hills, my name is Dan Kent, I'm a teaching pastor here, and uh, I, I, I'm so grateful that the bumper goes a couple minutes because it allows me to catch my breath uh, after worship. I think, I think that I sing wrong because I'm always like out of breath, and I, I, I like, like that last song was awesome, and Matthew on drums for some reason it just really connects with me, and that was, those drums were so good. Uh but uh, I, I always have like breathing problems. So I think I'm doing it wrong. So if somebody knows how to sing, maybe I could get some coaching or something. But uh, Greg was supposed to be here. Unfortunately, just to get a, a sense of who was here last week, clap if you saw Greg's sermon last week. Yes, he talked about yoga and it was, it was so good. So if you haven't seen it yet, check it out. Unfortunately, uh, Greg sort of got in the spirit of yoga and he attempted to do a triple-axle half-gainer into a downward dog, and he threw out his back, unfortunately. No, I'm kidding. He didn't do that. No, he's... He's actually doing really good. He's he he looks like five years younger. Uh, unfortunately, he sounds fifty years older. So that's the problem. Is his voice uh, problem came back. So he's got some bug that he's wrestling with, and, and he's having a hard time uh, talking uh, without hacking. So uh, he asked me if I would uh, uh, step up to the plate and be a pinch hitter. Which, on one hand, it's like boy. It's kind of scary because this is Greg's, one of Greg's like wheelhouse sweet spot issues. I mean, the last time he taught on this series, as we have said, we went like a year on this, like three or four verses and these ideas of love and judgment. He wrote uh, Repenting of Religion on this and there's there's so much profundity and brilliance in that book and here I come with a little sermon in that series. It's, It's a little intimidating. But on the other hand, I'm also really, really excited and I was hoping for an opportunity to somehow get some of these ideas that I've been thinking about into the series and uh, lo and behold, I have this opportunity. So I I can't wait to share some of this stuff with you. Uh, The series is called Cross Examination and uh, the reason why we called it that will hopefully become clear as the series unfolds. What I wanna look at in my sermon called The Absurdity of Judgment is I wanna look at the fact that judgment is absurd. And I want to make a case that our, our temptation to judge one another is a temptation to do something that, if we really understood what we were doing, would be absolutely ridiculous. And, and so that's what I want to do here today. The verse that we're looking at is Matthew 7, uh, verses 1 and 2. And we've been on this for a few weeks already. But it says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And the measure that you use, it will be measured against you. And it's, it's funny because this is the fourth sermon in this series on love and judgment. And we haven't really even talked about judgment yet. <laughs> four, four sermons in. And I think the reason for that is, uh, and this is actually one of the things I like about Woodland Hills, is we tend to... Try to look for the thing beneath the thing. That's the way that Oshida said it a few weeks ago. What is the thing beneath the thing? Because the fact of the matter is, is judgment is just the tip of a massive iceberg. There is a huge chunk of dysfunction and uh, sin and all sorts of things underneath the surface that compel us to judge. And so far, we've been looking at a lot of that stuff. And that's what I'm going to look at today as well. And I wanna start off by humiliating myself a little bit by talking about uh, my experience with puberty. I never thought I would be on a stage in front of so many people talking about puberty, but I, I, here I am, and uh, I can't stop now. I've, I've, I've kind of gone down this path. So going into seventh grade, um, I wanted to play football because I just, I loved football. And how they did it back then is if you wanted to play football, that's great, but you need to get a physical. And what a physical was for boys is you would stand in front of a doctor, and he would grab you in your privates, and he would tell you to turn your head and cough, and that Illuminated something to the doctor and he would take a note on his clipboard and then send you on your way. And how they did this when I was going into seventh grade is they would have all of the athletes, anybody who wanted to play a sport would come to Spring Lake High School on the same day and every boy would get their physical on the same day. And it was very efficient. On one hand, it's a very efficient system. I see why they did it. So the people going into seventh grade, they would be there at 10 a.m., 8th grade would be 10.30, 9th grade, 11, and so forth. And so there I was at 10 a.m., ready to get my physical, and I'm coming in, and here's my buddy Mike. Hey, Mike, how's it going? Boy, I can't wait for football. What position do you think you're going to play? Oh, isn't life rad? Rad. Oh, man, it's so great. I can't wait till school starts. And, and, and we start taking our clothes off, because we have to stand in line naked to see the doctor. And <clears throat> Mike, I don't know what he did. He was thinking ahead or something, but I looked up and he was already naked. He must have been wearing sweats or something because he just like, whew, he was naked. And, and I, I saw Mike's naked body and this is when the crisis began, okay? <laughs> Mike had hair all over his body. He had hair here and there and everywhere and I did not have hair here or there or anywhere except for on my little blonde head. That's the only place I had hair. And I suddenly... Became terrified that Mike is a man and I am not. And I started looking around, and there's Marty. He's got hair. There's Nick. Oh my goodness, Nick's got hair all over the place, too. I'm the only one who doesn't have hair. And so there was no way that I was going to take my clothes off to reveal my childish baldness in front of Mike and Marty and Nick. That just was not going to happen. So I needed a diversion tactic. And so, what I did was, I looked at my shoes. Oh, thankfully, I'm wearing tennis shoes. That's great. Okay. Well, I'm going to try and untie my shoes. Oh, shoot. I've got this knot in my shoe, and I can't seem to get this knot out. And Mike's like, Dan, are you coming? No, I'm sorry, Mike. I got this knot. You go on ahead. I'm going to get this knot out of my shoe. And, And my thought was, boy, if this works, I could just kind of pretend I've got this knot in my shoe until all of my seventh grade peers cycle through. And then when the eighth graders come, well, then I can, you know, go do my thing. Well, turns out I knew some of the 8th graders too and a ninth grader and it wasn't until the 10th graders came that I finally felt like, okay, now finally I can do this and so I took my clothes off and I joined this line of naked 10th graders and some of these guys had beards. I mean, they were like really, really hairy and so there I stood in this line with a hairy butt in front of me and this hairy crotch behind me and I, I just stood there in that Line in my smooth nudity. I was like, I was like the only tree in the forest without any bark. You know, it was just, <laughs> and and so that was my experience. Like I, I did not have hair then, and it looked like I should have. And so the point that I want to make here. Oh, by the way, my mom was waiting out in the hallway this whole time, like seeing kids go in and come out and go in and come out, and me not coming out. Uh, I still don't know for sure if she knows what was going on there and why it took me so long. So we'll, we'll see. But what I want to ask is this. Uh, what was that debilitating power that I felt? What was that that feeling that, that kind of bullied me? Almost, it felt like at gunpoint, to lie to my friends, to dilly-dally in this locker room while mom waited outside. What was that heavy, sick feeling that just kind of like shocked me in that moment. That's what I've thought about. And I think what it was is it was shame. It was, it was my first encounter with stark shame. It's this feeling that I'm less than others, I'm not like them in a bad way. They're more than me. Uh, I feel inferior to them. Uh, I I feel like I have some unfortunate abnormality or some deformity that gives me some great disadvantage. In that moment, I felt like this kind of swelling feeling of not liking myself, of, of kind of condemning myself, of rejecting myself as I am, of wanting to be somebody else. Shame is is very similar to its wicked partner, which is arrogance. Arrogance is the opposite of shame. Arrogance says that I'm better than others. Arrogance is a feeling of being superior. Well, I didn't feel that. I felt shame. I felt inferior. I felt less than others. And so this locker room experience, I felt like I was tapping into a really powerful force that has can have a, just a great amount of swagger and a lot of uh, influence in my life. I mean, look at what it caused me to do in that kind of isolated situation. And it wasn't even an issue that was that big of a deal. I mean, I was just like a slow developer. I mean, I didn't, I didn't uh, uh, mature as fast as my peers. But even then, look at how much power it had over me. Now, it turns out I've done some research. Kids who are slow developers, uh, they end up aging slower. I'm actually 94 years old, I don't know if you know that. <clears throat> They're also really great lovers, so it's, <clears throat> it's science, what can I say, you know? <laughs> but, you know, I've thought a lot about that power because, boy, I see that power of shame and arrogance. I see that just wrecking people's lives. And so I've thought a lot about it, and I really learned a great deal when I encountered the, the work of a person named Robert Sapolsky. And if you are interested in this, I recommend looking at the book, Lost Connections by Johann Hari. He has a great chapter where he talks about uh, Robert Sapolsky, and it's a good introduction to his his research. But this guy, when he was a kid, he became fascinated with baboons, and he uh, so much so that when he finished college, he actually moved to Kenya so that he could live with baboons and get to know and understand baboons. Uh, I think this guy might be almost as weird as me, but that's what he did. He, he went and lived with the, the, the baboons, and for 20 years he did that. And what he noticed early on is that when he found this troop of baboons that he wanted to associate with and learn about, he discovered that the baboon troop had a very strict hierarchy. And everyone in this troop knew their place in the hierarchy. And, and so they lived with this assumption, this, this belief that some baboons were better than others. And there were consequences based on where you were on the hierarchy. If you were the alpha baboon at the top, you had all sorts of advantages. And so the alpha baboon in this troop, uh, Robert named him Solomon uh, after the, the king in the Old Testament. And Solomon, he saw, Solomon could do pretty much whatever Solomon wanted to whichever baboon he wanted to do it to. If if Solomon was hungry and another baboon had food, that's mine now, and he would take the food. Uh, if if some baboon found a nice shady spot on a hot day, out they go. Solomon wants that spot. Solomon had all sorts of sexual liberties. In fact, what Robert discovered as he studied these different troops of baboons, over 50% of all of the sexual activity in these troops uh, were engaged in by the alpha baboon. And so that's just kind of the, the power and the advantage to being at the top of this hierarchy. Now, there was also a baboon at the bottom of the hierarchy, and that was sort of the runt baboon. And, uh, and the runt baboon in, in Robert's troop, Robert named him Job because of the tough life that this poor baboon had. The runt of this hierarchy, uh, everyone knew he was the runt, and so he sort of became the scapegoat for all of the frustrations of all of the baboons. And this poor baboon ended up living with this perpetual anxiety with like these fear seizures that he would get and he would always be trembling. And if you, if you looked at the runt, if you looked at Job closely, you would see bite marks and bruises from being beaten by the other baboons. And so what he saw is that status... Where you are in the hierarchy has profound consequences. In fact, even when you're at the top of the hierarchy, you only get there through violence. You have to beat up the alpha baboon who's there in order to take that spot. And in the 20 years that uh, Robert was with this troop, at some point, Solomon was finally conquered. It took like several days of these violent fights, but finally he was conquered. And the new baboon was there at the top now with all of these privileges, but always on the lookout for people who were trying to take it from him. And so it was sort of a brutal, aggressive kind of uh, journey to live in this type of hierarchical uh, community. But what I think is so fascinating is when you look at human nature and you look at societies, you know, genetically, we're very similar to the baboons. And socially, we also have these hierarchical tendencies in our uh, communities. We believe in America, we believe in our societies that some people are better than others. And so there's this hierarchy of value where some people are at the top, some people are at the bottom. And where you are in that hierarchy matters a great deal because there are consequences for being low or high on that hierarchy. Uh, In America, especially when you live in a capitalist society where competition is involved And how the society operates, that feeling of where you're at in the hierarchy is amplified. Uh, A couple people have said, you know, when you live in America, it feels like this. If you succeed here, you're a hero. If you fail here, you feel like the absolute lowest form of life on the planet. That's uh, Richard Winter. Michael Farr says this, being average in America sucks. But average applies to most of us and yet we each fight it. We are desperate to show each other that we have special significance. This hierarchy, this hierarchical way of looking at one another is sort of deep in our bones. It just kind of, it's way down in there. We don't even realize it, even though it shapes how we interact with everybody, and it shapes how we think about ourselves, how we think about others, and how we decide to do what we decide to do. Can you see how that might fuel judgment? (laughs) Can you see that if you really believed that some people are better than others and that there's this hierarchy and you could be at different levels and there are horrible consequences, the lower you go, the more horrible those consequences are. Can you see how that situation might compel you to judge other people to make sure that they know where their place is and to make sure that everybody knows where your place is, that you are... You're not maybe at the top, but at least you're not that guy. At least you're not down where that bozo is. You're up here. And, and you need to make sure everybody knows that they're a moron, that they are a pervert, that they are an idiot, that they are a coward, or whatever it is, you need to make sure the world knows that they are beneath you because there are consequences. You know, I, um, oh man, I just, uh, I just thought of this. <laughs> uh, Okay. All right. All right. All right. This is i I'm doing an audible here really quick. If you ever lose a bet and, um, and if if you're forced to watch the Burnsville high school, 1992 graduation ceremony, uh, that's the year I graduated with a D minus average, just barely graduated. Uh, if you're ever forced to watch that, you'll see this, this guy, I think his name was Troy. And from what I've told, he's a really, really great guy and really smart. He was sitting in the row with the valedictorians, the people who are, you know, the principal loved and got good grades and stuff like that. Well, when he graduated, he got his diploma, he walked back and he had cerebral palsy and he had uh, these, these walking sticks that he would use. And he walked back and uh, he went to his row and he was trying to get back to his seat and his walking stick caught on the chair And he fell face first into the lap of one of the people in the row. Now, if you watch that video, you'll hear, as soon as that happened, somebody up in the rafters with this loud, cackling laugh that he did that. And the laugh, it wasn't a joyful laugh. It was a ha, look at that, idiot kind of laugh. It was a laugh that tried to get other people to join in at the expense of this poor guy who has this disease that he can't do anything about. It causes him balance issues. He can't do anything about that. And yet despite that, he was still able to be a valedictorian. He was still able to graduate with a diploma. And somebody in the rafters laughed at him when he fell. And that somebody was me. That was me that laughed. And it's just the, the, the hierarchy. It's just, there I am with a D minus average just barely graduating, laughing at this guy who's had to overcome so much more than I will ever have to overcome. But I wanted everyone to know that I was above him. Can you see how pathetic that is? And can you see how that fear of not being good enough and just wanting to make sure that people know their place, how that can cause such absurd situations? It's not just me. It's, it's, it, it affects all of us. It even affected the disciples. The people that God chose, the people that Jesus chose to be with him during his ministry, you see this. And I don't have slides for this. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase and read this. But uh, when you look at Luke 9:44, Jesus says to his disciples, he calls them together and he says, listen carefully. I have bad news. I am going to be handed over to humans and they are going to kill me. That's what he says. Now, The disciples had already seen Jesus perform miracles. They've already experienced Jesus' love, his forgiveness, and now Jesus is sharing this bad news that he's going to be killed. How are the disciples going to respond to their master's bad news? How might the disciples comfort Jesus in light of this horrible revelation? Well, it says in the next verse this, An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who's greater? Who's higher on the hierarchy? Okay, 13 chapters later, probably a year later, okay, they're at the Last Supper. And Jesus again has some bad news. He says to his disciples, this is in Luke 22, starting in verse 20, he says, Listen, I'm going to be betrayed. The authorities are going to break my body and spill my blood. I'm going to die. Okay, now a year later, after another year of maturing with Jesus' presence, how might the disciples respond? How are they going to comfort Jesus in this tough time? I kid you not, this is what it says. (laughs) The disciples began disputing with one another which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, can you believe that? You can't make that up. I mean, here Jesus is saying this horrible injustice is about to happen, And the disciples are saying, enough about you, Jesus. Let's talk about us. Let's talk about us. Can you see how in the disciples' minds, this idea that some people are better than others was totally bullying them around and totally occupying their conscience and it it caused them to interpret this crisis as something about them, not about what was going on with Jesus. It affects Everybody, even the people who are with Jesus. Now, Jesus does respond to the disciples both times. The first time when, when the disciples say, which of us is gonna be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus responds by saying, whoever treats the most insignificant person the best they will be the greatest in the kingdom. And so Jesus responds because this whole idea of some people being better than others, and there's this hierarchy, that goes against the heart of what Jesus came to teach. That goes against everything that Jesus was trying to do with his mission here on earth. And the second time when they said, which of us will be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus replies with a little more complex response. He says, you know, look at you guys, listen. The people of the world, the leaders of the world, they let their status get to their head and they gloat over other people with their status. But let me ask you this. Who's greater, the person who's sitting at the big table or the person who is serving the person at the big table? Well, of course, in this world of hierarchy, the person who is sitting at the table is greater than the servant. And then Jesus says this, I have come as a servant in other words, haha! your whole way of looking at the world is wrong. Because if your way of looking at the world was right, Jesus would come as the person sitting at the table. But Jesus says, I'm not that guy. I'm the one serving. And so your whole idea that some people are better than others, and there's this hierarchy, it's nonsense. It's silly. It's absurd. And when you judge from that perspective, no matter what you say with that set of assumptions, it's going to make you look ridiculous when you see how reality actually is. The whole hierarchy, way of seeing one another is a sham, Jesus says. Things are not the way they seem. Yeah, in the world, it looks like the person at the table is greater, but that's not reality. The reality is uh, that neither one of them are greater. Um, In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew 23, 8. He says, you, he's saying this to his disciples, you have one master and you are all brothers and sisters. Uh, And so what he's saying here, and I, you know, this verse captured my imagination so much that I ended up spending 10 years writing a book trying to unpack the implications of this. And the book is called Confident Humility. And so if this is interesting to you, there's a lot more of it in there. But I just think that this is so profound because Jesus says this, you have one master and you are all brothers and sisters. Where he says this uh, is important. He says, right before he says this, he says, he says, You are not to be called rabbi, so don't let other people exalt you above them. Then he says, you are all brothers and sisters. And then he says in the next verse, and do not call anyone on earth father. That is, don't exalt anyone on earth. So here's what he's saying. He's saying this whole idea of exalting and denigrating people, that is putting yourself below people or putting yourself above people, they're both overturned by the reality of the fact that you are all brothers and sisters. Denigration and exaltation, it it doesn't make any sense with the reality of our profound equality. Inferiority and superiority, they're an illusion. They're not real. The reality is you are all brothers and sisters. Shame and arrogance are the symptoms of a really wicked delusion. It's a really wicked delusion that says some people are better than others. It's it's an illusion that we have to fight. Uh, And he says this in Matthew 23. And this is right before he's about to just totally unleash on the Pharisees. It's called the seven woes in in most Bibles. And he just really goes after the Pharisees here. But these 12 verses, 23, 1 through 12, Jesus lays the foundation of his attack. And the foundation of his attack is this. The Pharisees think they're better than everybody. They like to have the place at the table where everybody acknowledges their superiority. They like to be greeted on the street and to be called rabbi. They like to wear these boxes on their head with the Torah in them so everybody can see what good boys they are. They like to wear their tassels long so everybody can see how smart they are. They love their status. Jesus says you are not to be like that for you are all brothers and sisters. What Jesus is saying here is he's overturning this hierarchical system that we all grow up in. He's overturning this thing that, you know, maybe from an evolutionary perspective, this hierarchical thinking, that might have benefited us, but Jesus is saying we don't need that anymore. You are made in the image of God. You are all brothers and sisters. Nobody is better than you and you are better than nobody else. Jesus is telling us to stop acting like baboons. We're not baboons. We're just not. We're humans in the image of God. We're, in fact, a species that God became one of. And so, why would we act like baboons still? Jesus says the measure that you use is the same measure that will be used against you. And I think part of that is that if you are in a hierarchical world, and that's how you view the world is this hierarchical kind of way, That means that you're on this ladder and you are trying to step on people and you're trying to be above people on this ladder and you're trying to get up as high as you can on the ladder. And part of that is judging people and and putting them in their place on the ladder and securing your own place on the ladder. And guess what? If that's the world and that's how you see the world, well, there's always somebody right behind you trying to do the same thing to you, trying to step on you, trying to get a leg up on you to put you in your place so that they can establish What Jesus is saying is that we can get off the ladder. We don't need this ladder. The ladder is a lie. And uh, we can now see judgment as the absurd thing that it's always been. Now, a lot of this is easier said than done. I I get that. Um, I mean, we kind of have been born in a hierarchical world. We've been born in a world that's just kind of seeped in judgment. And so it, it, it runs really deep. It's way in there and and to kind of grow out of this hierarchical judgmental way of thinking it takes time and it helps if we have Tactics or tricks or things that we can use to kind of help us orient ourselves to the reality that we are all brothers and sisters and out of this idea that some people are better than others. And one thing that, that uh, Greg proposed a few weeks ago, and I I've, I've really like this, and, and we're kind of going with this, uh, is this idea of GAP. And so, Mind the Gap is my takeaway here for this week. And I want to talk a little bit about this acronym GAP. And if you've probably heard this already if you've listened to the last several sermons. But the idea is that, first of all, th- there's a long distance between where we are now and where God wants us to be. There's all sorts of opportunity for growth and things that, that we, we still have opportunities to learn. And so what are some things to help us get over the gap from here to there? And, and so Greg, kinda, Greg and the creative team kind of created this acronym. And the G in GAP stands for Get All of Your Life from Christ. And how it applies to what I'm saying here is this. Stop evaluating yourself based on some false hierarchy. Rather, evaluate yourself based on what Christ did for you on the cross. What does it say about you that God was willing to become human and die on the cross for you? It says something pretty profound about you. And so that's how you should understand yourself. Not based on how the world measures people and where people are put on a ladder in America or whatever, but rather, where am I in God's eyes? And the status there is pretty darn good. And I think that part of what it means to get life from something other than Christ is exactly that, to try to establish my status in the world. And that little buzz you feel when you feel like the smartest person in the room or the funniest person in the room or the best looking in the room, that little buzz you feel, although it feels good, um, it's reinforcing a delusion. It's reinforcing a delusion that that means something, that that means that you're somehow better than others. And in the long run, it's a sickness that will kill your spirit. And so what I would say is this. Whenever you feel inferior, not as good as others, or whenever you feel superior to others, learn how to see that as an alarm in your head. Learn how to see that as a light on your dashboard that says, wait a minute, you are not getting your life from Christ. You're getting your life from something else. Whatever it is, it's not Christ. Because in Christ, we are all brothers and sisters, and uh, it's false that some people are better than others. So feelings of inferiority or superiority must be a delusional symptom. And so see that as the the, uh, flaw that it is. The A in GAP stands for agree with God that everyone you encounter has unsurpassable worth and was worth Christ dying for. Uh, In other words, there are no runts. In God's kingdom, there are no, uh, there's nobody at the bottom of some crazy hierarchy. Uh, Everyone has profound worth in Christ. Um, And so the question is this what if you don't agree with that? What if you just have, maybe it's because you've been seeped in this hierarchical way of thinking so deep and it's so entrenched in you that you really feel. Like those people on that political party, they are just, they're less than human or whatever. Maybe you don't really feel when you look at somebody who can do just a horrible thing, commit a horrible crime, maybe you don't feel like they are as good as other people, that they are less human than me, that they are less loved by God than me or whatever. Maybe you feel that way. The reality is, we are all brothers and sisters. We are all profoundly equal. We are, we, are, we are all unsurpassably equal. And so it helps if you can remember that, and it helps even more if you can see the logic behind this. And so let me try to give you an argument that you can kind of carry with you as you go through your day to sort of fight back against that feeling that some people are not as good as others. And the argument goes like this. If you're a Christian, you believe that God loves you with an unsurpassable love. And that's demonstrated by the fact that uh, in Jesus, God became human and died on the cross. And Colossians tells us that on the cross, Jesus became our sin. Now, sin is the antithesis of God. Uh, Sin is is perfect ungodliness. And so by becoming sin in Jesus, God becomes the antithesis of himself. In other words, you can't possibly go farther than becoming the antithesis of yourself. In other words, God couldn't have possibly gone farther. He could not have possibly paid more for you to demonstrate his love for you. Now, if that's true, if God loves me with that unsurpassable love, that means that he also loves you with that unsurpassable love. And that also means that he can't love Todd or Margot more than you or me. Because if he loved Todd or Margot more, well, then his love for us would have been surpassable. So if God loves us with an unsurpassable love, that means we are all unsurpassably equal. No matter what the appearance looks like, no matter how horrifying a person's behavior is, underneath that horrifying behavior is, a, is an image of God that is loved unsurpassably. Now, the second part of this is that maybe you can agree with that conceptually. Maybe you say, yeah, um, I I believe that we are all brothers and sisters and God loves us all, but it, it doesn't really play out in your life. Maybe you've got some residual kind of hierarchy in there that keeps you from actually living out the profound liberation of living as brothers and sisters because I think it is liberating. If that's the case, here's something that has helped me and has helped a lot of people that I've spoken to is this. Um... We are made in the image of God, and God loves us with an everlasting love. I'm more than good enough to God. Okay, we get that conceptually. The problem, though, is that the toil of living in a hierarchical world, when we have this baboon nature where we're always trying to secure ourselves and put people in their place, it forces us to focus on three, four, maybe five key attributes. In America, it's things like, how wealthy are you? How good looking are you? How healthy are you? Um, How smart are you? Those types of things. And we fixate on those three, maybe five or six things. Some cultures, they focus on different things, but in America, those are kind of the big ones here. Uh, what helps to realize is that what we're doing there is we're dumbing down our understanding of ourselves and each other to just a few variables. And the reality is is that if we could zoom out, we would see that that is absolutely ridiculous that we're doing that. Because what it means to be a human is way more complex than five or six attributes. Uh, And so, for instance, here's what I did. This is an activity that I did. um, And this is the second tactic in confident humility at the end. And I have this list in there as well. I set a timer for 10 minutes and I came up with 120 attributes that you could use to describe a person. I'm not going to read them all, but here's just a few to kind of give you an idea. Uh, How intelligent is that person? Do they have a sense of rhythm? I don't. Uh, Are they ambitious? How tall are they? Can they articulate their perspective well? How much hair do they have? What's their beard like? Did you see Danny's beard, by the way? That is a nice beard. Man, I have beard envy. Uh, How courageous are they? Uh, How generous are they? Are they decisive? How youthful do they look? How playful are they? Are they loyal? Do they have good coordination? How fast can they run? Do they have good math skills? How clean are they? How popular are their friends? Do they have good attention to detail? What's their laugh like? Can they negotiate well? Are they assertive? Are they teachable? Do they tell a good story and on and on and on and on? And when you see that a person has almost an infinite amount of attributes, can you see how silly it is to look at somebody and only see one? Just see that one attribute and say, pfft, they're beneath me. Because of that one attribute? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. When you see that a person has this incredible splendor of attributes... When you see the whole galaxy of stars that make up a person, you don't have to get so worked up about the dimness of one star. I mean, that's ridiculous. Look at all of the stars that make up the sky. Look at all the attributes that make up a person. When you zoom out and you can see all of that, you start to see the judgments that you make about yourself and the judgments that you make about others as the ridiculous thing that it has always been. And finally, P is pray for your enemies. And what better way to practice G and A than to pray for your enemies? Because, you know, praying for your enemies, that's a weird thing in in America and in the world. Because in the world, well, we live in this hierarchy. We live in a world where people want to separate people who disagree with us or who are less than us. We live in a divide and conquer sort of world. Uh, in, in our world, we try to humiliate or on YouTube, it says destroy our enemies. Like Jordan Peterson destroys liberal newscaster or something like that. I mean, there's just this, like, this violence in there where we're trying to always put people in their place on the hierarchy. That's what that means. The mob tries to do the same thing. The mob tries to separate, to divide and conquer. Uh, And the mob, they might applaud things that you say and things that you do, but the mob will never, never love you. Because the mob is just trying to put you in your place, know where you stand, do you support me, are you on this side or that side? It's all about how you benefit them and whether or not you are higher or lower on the hierarchy than them. But in Christ... This is a radically different way to live. In Christ, we are all brothers and sisters. In Christ, the people that we encounter, they're not stepping stones. They're not support for my agenda. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are not a threat to our security. Even if they disagree with us, even if they do things that shock us in how much we disagree with them, uh, they are just not a threat to our security in Christ when we can zoom out on ourselves and then apply that to others as well and we can zoom out on them and get to know people beyond just the simple three, four, five, ten attributes that we normally assess people by and we can get to understand the rich complexity that makes up that person, then we can start to see how our judgments of them are as absurd as God sees them. I understand uh, why some people don't understand what the big deal of faith is. I understand why people don't see what the good news of Jesus really is. And I, I think part of that is because so often when we talk about the good news that Jesus brings, we sort of limit that to a salvation story. And that's important. The salvation story is absolutely important. But the good news is so much more than that. And I think that's why I really like this teaching is because it really shows us that what Jesus offers isn't just this good news for the by and by. It's not just this good thing that God's going to do for us in a galaxy far, far away in heaven. What Jesus is teaching here is something that can liberate us here and now. It's something that can affect every moment of our life from today forward. And I think it can make your spiritual walk just a little bit better every day every day, and it will compound, and I think it will bless you more and more. Because what Jesus is doing is he's calling us out of this harsh jungle of hierarchy. And that's what it is. It is a harsh jungle of hierarchy. And he's saying, look, listen, it looks like a harsh jungle. It looks like a hierarchy, but in reality, you are all brothers and sisters. This is a playground. This is a place where you can play and grow and learn in the peace of the fact that God already thinks you're good enough the way you are. In God's eyes, you are at the top of the ladder. In God's eyes, you are the best. You are awesome. You are worthy of uh, Christ's death. And so what that means is that we can let go of the brutal toil of trying to be good enough in this hierarchy on this big, rickety, dumb ladder, and we can just rest in that sort of relaxed magic of being loved by God. Um. Thank you so much for coming out. And uh, if you need prayer, there will be people up here who can pray with you. Also, if you're online, uh, you can pray online with us. We have gathering groups on Monday. Join Shauna and I on Tuesday at 4.30 on YouTube. We'll talk more about this message. If you're coming next week, please let us know so that we can, especially if you have kids, so that we can uh, prepare our volunteers for that. Uh, Thanks, everybody. Have a blessed week and uh, I hope to see you soon.